You guys can be seated. At this time, we got children who'd like to go to children's ministry. They're, all, of course, welcome to stay here as well. But we have Miss Bethany who'll be going to children's ministry. Uh, and they'll meet right at the back door there, and they'll head out. And so if you would like to go and be a part of that, or have your kids go be a part of that, I mean, um, I'd like all of you to stay here. <laughs> uh, but if, uh, if your kids would like to be a part of that, that'd be great. Go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15 this morning. Um, I use the English Standard Version in case you want to make sure that matches up, or it'll be on the screens behind me as well. As you're finding that chapter, though, as you're finding Hebrews chapter 9, I want to tell you uh, a little bit about one of my prior life experiences that you may not have heard about. So I was a youth pastor for 15 years uh, before I became a lead pastor. And when I was in youth ministry, somewhere along the way, I became a show promoter. And now some of you are like, "What, what does that mean? Well, it means that I held concerts. I booked them, I advertised them, I ran them, and it was a lot of fun, a little stressful, but a lot of fun, and I had some really cool interactions with some pretty great musicians. Now, no one really taught me how to do it, I just sort of had to learn by starting to make phone calls, right, and I'd got a a booking agent or a manager on the phone and a couple of those guys, a guy named Cujo kind of started to talk me through it on the phone, yeah, he was a a band manager. Um, I could name some of the bands that he managed, but you wouldn't probably recognize most of them um, because they're, this, is, this has been close to 20 years ago at this point. So, uh, I mean, up until sooner, but anyway. Uh, so I really didn't have any training. I just had to kind of make it up as I went along and call people and find out how to do things. Now, I don't know if you know this, but if they're a known band and you're wanting to book a band for a concert... Uh, or an artist, and they're a nationally touring band, or they're, they're well-known, you can't just call the band up. You can't just look at the phone number on the inside of their CD or whatever and give them a phone call. It doesn't work like that, at least not back then. You had to go through their booking agent. And even then, the booking agent worked through not the band directly. They worked through the band's manager to get them to check with the band and make final approval for the show. And you did not get full access to the band like that on the front end. But then, once the contract was signed and the band showed up and you had load-in on that day, day of the show, generally, they were pretty cool and you could hang out and spend time with them. And even I even became friends with some of the bands uh, that, we, that we hung out with. Some of them stayed in our apartment. And uh, one band in particular that got really well-known later, uh, Bethany can still recall them washing her dishes for her uh, in our apartment, which is a pretty, a pretty cool deal. Uh, ironically, because we fed them spaghetti, and now like they're really well known for the lead singer being vegan. Uh, <laughs> but he definitely ate meat at our house. Anyway, um, that's beside the point. My point is not that, but my point here is that there was a mediator. You couldn't go straight to the band to book the band. There was a go-between. And that's a light illustration of what we've got going on today in Hebrews chapter 9. We want to find out what this says about the access the old covenant people had to God and the access that we today enjoy under the new covenant. The author of Hebrews wants to help his audience understand these theological concepts so that they'll not give in to the temptation that they were under to revert back to their old covenant Jewish ways. And he does something really helpful in chapters 9 and 10, which we'll get into um, in the following weeks, 
But he does something really helpful in chapters 9 and 10 in which he, he uses those to summarize, kind of like a summary uh, of what had come before. Think about in school, right? You learn something in school, and then you have summer break, and you go to the swimming pool for three months and forget. Well, it used to be three months. Now it's like a month and a half or two months that the kids are off school. Uh, but it used to be, I'm old enough to remember when it was three, pretty three solid months we were off. And you'd go to the pool, and then you'd come back after summer break, and you'd forget everything you learned. And so the teachers would sometimes, as they would enter into and start a new concept in the new year, they would summarize what you had already learned to remind you and prepare you for new material. And this is sort of what's going on here. So let's look at the text and see what God would say to us in his word this morning. We're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, And through the greater and more more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand And, of course, apply it to our lives. Lord God, as we come and we dwell on your word, help us understand it, help us grasp what it means, and help us to apply it to our lives. Like applying paint to a fence that changes the fence. May your word change our lives. This is not about me, Jesus. It's about you. May you increase and I decrease this morning. May you be glorified in everything I do and say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
So I think to start, we should probably start at the starting point. And I got real cute with alliteration that, you know, I don't do that a lot, but I got real cute with alliteration uh, th- this, uh, this week on the sermon uh, uh, point. So the main point, if you're taking notes, some of you do, is our starting point. It's access restricted. Where we start in this passage is man's, mankind's access to God is restricted because of our sin. And we see that played out in the tabernacle. The, the place, and we have this comparison of the earthly place versus what we said last week, the heavenly place. And we see this kind of played out in verses 1 through 10. It says there were regulations for worship in the Old Covenant. There were rules for worship that were specific. The, the people of Israel had to worship in a specific way. And they had to do it in a specific place. And this was their earthly place of holiness. And it was elaborate. It was a place where they were supposed to worship. The tent, as it's referred to, or tabernacle, okay? We're referring to the same thing there. The tent or the tabernacle was Israel's mobile tent of meeting with God. And it was divided up into a couple of different sections. And for this, I actually have a diagram and a laser pointer. So go ahead and put that diagram up there, the first one. So this is a, um, a rough, not-to-scale diagram of how the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness was laid out. And we have here, this is the tabernacle. So you have the outer court surrounded by these curtains, okay? And then in just a minute, I'm going to talk about the holy place, which is right here. And then the most holy place right here, with the holy of holies, or the most holy place, the second section which was divided by this curtain here, okay? And then, of course, you have the tribes camped out all around it, okay? It's a good thing we don't have any cats in here because they go crazy with the laser pointers, but anyway. So inside the tabernacle, what do we find? So we have a recollection here of what the holy place and the most holy place in the tabernacle contain. Now, you've probably seen pictures of the lampstand. It was a menorah. And there were seven branches with cup-shaped oil lamps at the top. And I'm not going to read this whole passage right now, but you can hear this recounted in Exodus 25, 31 through 40. So a priest was to make sure that this light on this lampstand never went out even all through the night. They had to keep it burning all through the night. In fact, Exodus 27, verse 21 says, In the tent of meeting outside the veil, that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So we have the lampstand. Then also the bread of presence. The bread of the presence was not one loaf, but 12. It was 12 loaves. And it was baked fresh every week. When the new loaves were placed, the old ones would then be eaten by the priests. And the bread was always there, but it had to be placed, or excuse me, had to be replaced all of the time to make sure that it was kept fresh. Both of these physical objects, the lampstand and the bread, point us to Jesus Christ. Everything in the tabernacle and then later in the temple had a purpose of pointing us to Jesus Christ. The people didn't realize that at the time, right? But that was the purpose. In John 9, 5, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And in John six thirty five, calls himself the bread of life. 
He's the new temple in John 2, 21, and the new bread of the presence. And this bread never needs replacing. The bread in the tabernacle, it needed replacing constantly. The bread of life never needs replacing. In fact, it can't be replaced when we put our trust in his broken body, which we symbolize by eating this bread. Followers of Christ get to enjoy access to holy places. So only the priests could go in and see these pointers to Christ. Everyone else who worshipped had to stay outside in that. Can you pull that graphic back up, Kenan? Only the priests could go in. So the, the priests could go in. Everybody could, they could, people could go into the outer court. But the priests could go into the holy place. But only they could go in and see these pointers. And then only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and only once a year at that point. We're going to get more into that here in a minute. So everyone else had to stay in the courtyard, the outside area. They didn't have access to it. There was separation. The intersection was more special, though. This was blocked by a curtain. The writer points this out to us. Here in the most holy place, we find the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was like a sort of history box containing reminders of what God had done for his people. Think of it almost like a mobile time capsule that they carried around with them to remind them of what God had done. It was more than just this because of what Scripture calls the mercy seat. On the lid of the Ark, was the mercy seat, and it was a picture of God's throne. It was a symbol of God's throne. It was where his presence dwelt. Leviticus 16.2 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Entering this most holy place, was reserved for the high priest once a year. And as the high priest went in and pulled back the curtain to walk in, it would have been pretty terrifying because he would have known, he would have known his own sin. Leviticus 16, 2 through 3. I just read part of it. Let me read the rest. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. This was only a symbol of what God's real throne in heaven was like. But still, if he entered in at the wrong time, in the wrong way, dead. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5 is what most of us think about when we think of a description of God's throne room. I think this is probably, um, when people think of that who are familiar with the Bible or with the Old Testament, they think of this passage. I'm going to read it. You may see if this sounds familiar to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With, one, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Regarding the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies, Michael Kruger writes this. Imagine that you are the high priest. You're back to pull back the curtain. You would be thinking, how did my week go? How obedient have I been? How holy am I? Is this sacrifice going to be enough to clear my sin? Even the high priest was an earthly person. He was still limited, so he entered with trepidation. All this tells us is that you cannot just stroll into God's presence in your current sinful state. You need someone to fix that problem. See, the Jewish priests of the tribe of Levi, they did their duties regularly, over and over again, the same ritual. But the problem was that it didn't really solve the problem. (laughs) It didn't really solve the problem of sin. In Romans 3.23, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all means all. There was only one perfect person ever, and they hung him on a cross. Verse 9 tells us why all of this ritualistic, the sacrifices, all of this in the Old Covenant, why this didn't solve the problem of sin. They were provisional realities for the body until the one who could solve the problem of sin forever would come into the world. This arrangement could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10 tells us that they only deal with food and drink and various washings. See, the problem was that all of, the, all of these rituals, the sacrifices, the, you know, it's the sprinkling with the ashes, the heifer it talked about, The problem with that was it deals only with the outward body and action, but does not cleanse the inside to the heart of a person. And in order for the way to be opened to God, there had to be a way for our very nature to be changed, our heart to be changed. So that's the problem with restricted access. That's our starting point. Number two, our second main point this morning is this, that we needed a once and for all time sacrifice, not animals that had to be continually sacrificed. And so Jesus came and atonement was accomplished. So you're writing that down, once and for all time, atonement is accomplished. And we see this played out in verses 11 through 15. Back in verse 7, though, we read that the high priest only entered the most holy place and went with blood to offer for the unintentional sins of the people. Now that word, unintentional, that ought to like stand out to you a little bit. Like, what's that? Why well, Unintentional sins, what are those? See, I think we can divide sin into three categories. We often divide it into two, and I think we can add this third one here. Number one is we, we say sins of commission and sins of omission, and then unintentional sins. Sins of commission are sins that we commit. It's when we do that which Scripture prohibits. So second, so we have sins of commission. Then we have sins of omission. These are sins where we neglect to do that which scripture commands. So it's when we don't do what scripture tells us to do. For example, when we neglect the gathering of the saints for worship, as scripture tells us not to do, and, we, and we are, we're supposed to gather together for worship, and when we neglect that, we're omitting doing something that God has told us to do. We're neglecting the gathering, excuse me, we're neglecting to do that which Scripture commands. But here we have mentioned the unintentional sins of the people. Now, Al Mohler explains it this way. 
Unintentional sins are those we commit without realizing we are committing them. Due to the pervasive and insidious effects of sin on our entire beings, we can't even recognize the times we're unaware we're sinning. It's these unintentional sins of the people that precipitated the high priest's ministry and made it necessary for him to offer a blood sacrifice. The high priest didn't just have to offer a sacrifice for the people, though, but he had to offer, (laughs) blood had to be offered for his sins as well because he was human with a sin nature. And it's one of the other reasons why we needed a better high priest who did not have any sin to be atoned for, but who could be the perfect sacrifice and atone for all of our sin. And there is this fantastic phrase in verse 11. But when Jesus appeared. But when Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. Things to come, not things that had happened, but the high priest of the new covenant moving forward. Not the old that was fading, but the new that had fulfilled the old covenant. It says he entered through the greater and more perfect tent, one not built with human hands. That means he didn't serve in an earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly one, in the heavenly place, at the right hand of God interceding for us. And he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood shed on the cross. In verse 12, thus securing eternal redemption for us. That secured because it was by his own blood and he was able by his own blood to enter into the holy place and be a mediator for us. Thus, he is able to secure our eternal redemption and did. How much more superior. This this proves right here, this is the author of Hebrews writing to these Jewish Christians, these Hebrew Christians who were in danger of falling back into their old covenant ways of worship. And it was him writing and saying, how much more superior is the blood of Christ to the blood of animals and to the whole system that went along with that? How much more superior, how much more capable, how much more effective for salvation. Those old rituals could just cleanse you. They were an outward thing, but they could never deal with the heart. And that's why a lot of people will come to church. They'll be like, I'm going to get my life right. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing all these holy things. I'm going to start doing all these godly things. But they never surrender their heart to Jesus. They never truly believe the gospel and repent of their sins. And so they've got a bunch of religious activity out here and dead bones in here. But Jesus made a way for the inside to be clean. To purify our conscience, it says, from dead works to serve the living God. Too many people in our churches are all about doing dead works instead of serving the living God. Look at verse 15. Therefore, because everything I just said, right? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Remember I said, remember I said that I needed a mediator to book a band. I had to call the booking agent. I couldn't go directly to the band. You can go directly to the band now. There, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I about tipped my water over, sorry. Scared me, did it scare you? Therefore, because he did that, he's the mediator of the new covenant, fulfilling the old and mediating the new, who made the way. And what did this do? Well, here's the great thing about this. In the old covenant was God's covenant with Israel. And the new covenant, guess what? Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish, which probably is most of us in this room, I don't know everybody's heritage, all right? But get to get in on this, too. Right? So that. So that. Verse 15. So that. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Those who are called, or the translation that would be also... um, means also summoned, so called or summoned, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. See, Jesus promises us this, that those whom he has called will know him, and he doesn't and won't lose any the Father has given him. This is a promise we got to cling to as Christians, right? In John 6, 35 through 40, Jesus actually talks about this. He says, uh, it says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a sweet promise that we have guaranteed that those who've called on the name of the Lord, who are called by him, will be held for eternity. How incredible. How incredible. But he goes on in verse 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the old covenant. A death has occurred. Jesus on the cross, giving his life in the place of sinners as a substitute. Instead of sinners facing the wrath of God, Jesus hung on the cross and took our punishment, took the wrath of God for our sin, for the sin of those who believe in him. And it redeems us from transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. That's great news. Because you look at all the transgressions under the first covenant. Like, we just take the Ten Commandments and go down the list. How many of those are you guilty of? Well, Scripture says if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken all of it. So, congratulations. You're a lawbreaker. But there's an answer for that. There's an answer for that. Redeems us from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Sins of commission, 
sins of omission, and as we read, unintentional sins of the people. Because of our sin nature, there's sins that we commit. We don't even realize we're doing them. Jesus' death was big enough. His sacrifice was sufficient to cover that too. So what's our outcome here? What's our outcome? You got the, the first couple of, of truths here. Access was restricted. Atonement was accomplished. And now what's our outcome? Access is granted. Access to God is granted. This is such amazing news. Verses 23 through 28, we see it. Jesus brought us near to God and gives us full access to God and relationship with him. Without Jesus' sacrifice, we would still be in the outer courts. We couldn't get inside. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection, gives us full access and relationship to Father God. Even the highest sacrifice the people of Israel could think of, the high priest on the day of atonement going in, even the highest sacrifice they could think of, the most holy thing they could think of, apart from God, could not bring newness of life. There had to be a greater sacrifice. I read one commentator who said, the old covenant can be summed up in one phrase. Okay, you ready for this? The old covenant can be summed up in one phrase. Not yet. Not yet. And the new covenant can be summed up with this word. Now. Now. The present age of restriction would be over and the new age of access would come. Because, verse 11, but when Christ appeared, it's fulfillment. Everything that was promised in the Old Testament, everything, that the, the stuff in the tabernacle, everything that the Old Covenant and the laws and the rules and the rituals and all of that pointed to was Jesus. And here he is appearing and fulfilling, accomplishing and what did that fulfillment accomplish? It accomplished our access to God. I don't know if you remember clear back when we were preaching through Hebrews chapter 4. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, we read this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Jesus fulfilling the old covenant, being the perfect sacrifice. We have access granted us to God and we can with confidence, not, not, not boastfulness, but with confidence in Jesus, draw near to the throne of grace. We can draw near to God. He made a way for us to draw near to God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look at that verse again. Draw near to the throne of grace. Do you know what the Greek equivalent is to the phrase throne of grace? I don't expect you to answer, okay? The Greek equivalent to the phrase throne of grace is 
mercy seat. We can draw near to the place where God dwells. It's all connected by Jesus. Now we can enter with confidence and have access to God because of Jesus. We can draw near because of Jesus making a way for us to pass the curtain. In fact, the curtain was torn. So we had the tabernacle, and then eventually they built the temple where they would worship, a permanent site, okay? When the nation was established and they built the temple, And inside the temple, there was also a curtain, they called it the veil, separating the holy place from the most holy place, like in the tabernacle. And when Jesus was crucified, the veil was torn. It was torn from top to bottom, which I like to imagine, you know, the only person who could start at the top and rip it in half is God. Signifying that now the people could go directly into God's presence. Because they were cleansed from that old sinful state by Jesus. And that's what makes us able to go in. See, this is the difference between outside ritual and inside cleansing. It's an argument in the scripture from lesser to greater that he makes here. And Jesus' unique sacrifice was able to accomplish the inner cleansing for two reasons that are given. One, he offered himself through the eternal spirit. Now there's some uh, um, discussion about what that whole phrase means there. But what I want you to get from it is that it's eternal. That this is not a one-time thing. This is a forever thing. And number two, He offered himself without blemish. The sacrifices that were brought, the animal sacrifices that were brought, had to be perfect. No broken bones, no spot, no blemish. And here was Jesus, that that was foreshadowing, that that was pointing to. Completely pure and holy, no sin. Offering himself on the cross, in the place of sinners, When he didn't deserve to die, he took a death that we deserved in our place for our sin so that we could get his right standing before God and thus have access to the throne of God. So what does that do in our lives? What do we do with that? Well, it comes down now to our obedience. So if we say, I believe that, I've trusted Jesus Christ, I followed Jesus, then it comes down to, if we really trust Jesus, so are we going to take him in his word and obey? So our obedience, an application of this to change the way we live. And as I go through these last few things, I'm going to invite the musicians to come forward and get ready to play our last song. But I want to ask you a few questions and say a few things and challenge you. Number one, has this atonement been applied to you? Have you ever repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ for salvation? Believed that he died in your place for your sin? Dying a death that you deserved in your place? Second question, how does this change how you live? What is your next step of faith? You say, yes, Pastor Cal, I believe that. I've staked my life on it. Okay, 
So what about your life needs to change to more greater obey the way that Jesus says, my followers will live this way? What is your next step of faith? The gospel, when our lives are built upon the truth of the gospel, it will change us. It will change us. Are you saying you believe in Jesus and the new covenant, but you're trying to live out a religious existence that relies on religious activity rather than the grace of Jesus displayed on the cross and his victory over death shown by his resurrection? Are you doing all of the church stuff out here with the dead bones on the inside? I want to challenge you with something as we, as we get ready to sing again, and it's this. I believe that it is time for us each to decide if we're going to truly follow Jesus with our lives. Now, I don't mean if you believe. What I mean by this is, are we going to focus on the change that the gospel brings inside and leaning into the change as it works its way out into our daily lives? Are we going to be the church in the way that Jesus describes the church in Scripture? Or are we going to play games with the world? The question for you this morning is, will you get serious about your discipleship? Because you have access to the very throne room of God as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, will you be serious about making disciples as God has commanded us and commissioned us to do? Would you look at your life and say, I- I've wasted so much time? Well, if that's you, the good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus entering into the holy place and opening the way for us, you can start fresh today. No matter what yesterday looked like for you, you can start fresh today. Today is the day you can begin. So the question is will you surrender to his word and to his way? of living over your way. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, for the truth of the gospel, for the fact that we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. Jesus, that you entered into the holy place and that you sit at the right hand of the throne room, or at the throne of God and mediate for us, intercede for us. Jesus, help us believe you, to believe your word, to take you at your word. And God, may that reverberate out from our hearts into our bodies and our lives, that people would see a difference in us, that they would see how the gospel has changed us. Not that we're perfect, but that when we sin and when we wrong others, that we approach them and we humbly come and we confess and ask for forgiveness and grant forgiveness that we would serve you that we would live our lives with you as the priority not our own wants and desires help us Jesus we can't do it without you without you it's just religious activity help our hearts to be captured and captivated with you and with the gospel Lord And let us be different. 
and be centered on you and devoted to you and seeking you. And Father, would you be glorified in that? Would you be made more famous because of that? Please, Jesus. God, I thank you for this time. I pray that as we continue this worship through singing, that you would continue to be glorified and lifted up. And that you would keep on changing our hearts and molding us into who you want us to be. And it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us again?